0: fill our lives every day. God will often strip away the things and the people that matter most to us. In the midst of the heartache, we wonder if God cares. We hear the promises of blessing, but wonder why a good God would ask us to endure such grief and torment. And there are no simple answers to understanding God's providence. Most of us have probably heard the illustration of a tapestry throughout our lives that looks like a frayed mess, and then we get to glory, we look around and we see the beautiful uh, uh, tapestry that God has made. And that's very helpful to us. Our passage today brings us face to face with one reason God calls us to endure pain and loss. It's not the only reason, but I think it may be the most important reason. Genesis 22. Brings us to the climactic moment in Abraham's life. Well, at least his personal journey of faith in this world. But this moment, even though it is the climactic moment, is not the moment where Abraham receives the fullness of God's blessing. Rather, hear this clearly, it is the moment where God calls Abraham to abandon that blessing. And in this one moment, we see the picture of the goal of salvation and the true fixing of Abraham's heart which is the very thing that all of us struggle with. That which was broken in the fall of Adam and Eve is beautifully restored. Adam and Eve purposely chose some aspect of the blessing over God. They loved having the fruit of blessing more than they loved God and Adam and Eve's choice have infected all of us. We don't love God over other loves. We want God to make us happy. We want God to give us good things. We look at maybe at some portion of God if it'll make us feel good, but we don't really love God. We love ourselves first. When God first appeared to Abraham, back in chapter 12, he gave to him promises of blessing. And God knew, Abraham didn't, but God knew when he showed up at Abram's Abraham's door and said to him, I'm going to bless you, God knew that he would bring Abraham to this moment. And God also knows when he called you to himself that he would also bring you to the moment of which Abraham is experiencing here. Abraham is a model to us of where the covenant love of God is bringing all of his children. Not one is there an exception to this rule. Today we are going to focus on Abraham as a model for us. But Abraham is not merely a model for us. Abraham is also a model of the Father's love. And Abraham is also a model or type of Jesus Christ. Now originally, you know me, I wanted to fit all three of those into one sermon. But we can't do that. So my plan is to deal with this same passage of Scripture over the next three weeks. Each week we will look at something different. The same passage from a different vantage. And it's very important that you cannot separate the three vantage points. One way to think of this is to think of the Trinity. I've had some discussions on the Trinity this past week, so maybe that's why it came into my mind. But you can look at it very clearly this way. Today, in focusing on Abraham as our model, we are really focusing on the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of people. Next week, when we look at the, the Abraham as a model of the Father's love, we will be looking at the Father. And then finally, we will look at Abraham as a type of Christ, and we will see Christ. So all three of those will fit together, and just understand that we can somewhat distinguish them, but in all three, they're always working together. So ideally, we could just be here all day long, and we'd have three sermons and get it all done together at once, but that's not the way it's going to work. So my, my encouragement to you is to go back and look at these passages to, to see, where do you see the Father's love? Where do you see Christ? It's for the help you out for the coming weeks. With that being said, let's go ahead and read this passage of Scripture. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. am." He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall, be all, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. <clears throat> the test of Abraham is whether he would sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. God gives to Abraham a very specific command, and Abraham is expected to obey. If he obeys, he passes the test. If he disobeys, he fails. And as we read this story, you are supposed to put yourself in the place of Abraham. We are to ask ourselves, what would I have done if I were in Abraham's place? Would you challenge God as immoral? Would you tell him that this command was illogical and that he had made a mistake? Would you resist God and tell him over my dead body, will you take my son? Would you have hesitated in confusion? Or would you have obeyed? You see, many have used this passage of Scripture to challenge the very goodness of God Himself. What sort of God would give such a horrendous command? In 1843, Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book, Fear and Trembling, In this book, he reflects upon this passage, calling it the teleological suspension of the ethical. Don't write that down. If you want it, you can have it later. Those are big words, but this is basically what he means by them. That the supreme test of faith is whether or not you will suspend your sense of right and wrong to simply obey God's voice. I'm not a big fan of Kierkegaard. But I do understand that he gets that there is a real moral dilemma going on here. More recently, a lady I'm not really familiar with, so uh, her name is Rachel Held Evans, you might be. She has a blog in 2014. She wrote this. Belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man. She continues, while I agree we can't go, on, can't go making demands and bending God into our own image, it doesn't make sense to me that a God whose defining characteristic is supposed to be love would present himself to his creation in a way that looks like nothing like our understanding of love. If love can look like abuse, if it can look like genocide, if it can look like rape, if it can look like eternal conscious torture, well, everything is relativized. Our moral compass is rendered totally Unreliable. Atheist Richard Dawkins goes even further. God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar, put firewood on it, and trust Isaac up on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervenes with the news of the last-minute change of plan. God was only joking after all tempting Abraham, testing his faith. This disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. Quote, unquote, I was only obeying orders. These writers are basically taking the climax of God's story of redemption and they've turned it into an evil of which you should just be disgusted with. While this story is not presented in Scripture as a moral dilemma at all, there's not really a statement in, in the text that tells you that this is a moral dilemma. I do not believe that this command is, is inconsistent with God's moral character, but this will have to wait, the, the main discussion of this will have to wait until we get to the Father's love in the next sermon. We'll try to flesh this out in its entirety. Well, at least as far as I can take it. But I would tell you that the Bible is consistently opposed to all forms of child sacrifice, Leviticus 18.21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. Jeremiah 32.35 says it even more strongly, they built high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Child sacrifice is an abomination to God. All I can tell you right now, that's consistent, that's true. And it's even, you're, it's even, you're even able to make a case from Genesis 22 that the foundation of why child sacrifice is evil is found in this text. But again, that's all going to wait until next week. <clears throat> the fact that God is commanding Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering does give us help. It's not just a mere case of slay someone. That's not it. The fact that it is a burnt offering helps us to see that there's a theological uh, truth that is being presented in this sacrifice. And again, that will wait as we move forward. We do not have verbal commands to slay our children. But I will tell you this, that God providentially does take away our children often in this life. And good, solid Christians ask the question, how could a good God do such a thing? So the moral dilemma is an issue. I think it's important, and we will deal with it more next week. But more than a moral dilemma, God's command would have appeared illogical and incompatible with the promises of God that's the issue you see god has previously told abraham that not just that he would be blessed he has told him precisely at two different cases in genesis 17 and genesis 21 that it is through isaac that the blessing will come that is the issue You see, so to command Abraham to sacrifice Isaac is tantamount to burning up the promises of God. Richard Belcher says this, all the promises of God hinged on Isaac. So when God tells Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering, God is asking Abraham to put to death his hope for the future. Calvin takes it a step further. Leave it to Calvin. For the great source of grief to Abraham was not only his own bereavement, not that he had was commanded to slay his only heir, the hope of future memorial and of name, the glory and support of his family, but that in the person of this son, the whole salvation of the world seemed to be extinguished. That gets it. Abraham was to be the blessing to the world. And God was telling him, slay the very one through whom the blessing would go to the world. Now here's what's going on. This test is a test of faith. Does Abraham believe that God's previous promises are unbreakable? If he believes that those promises are unbreakable, that they cannot fail based upon God's character, that he never goes back on his promises, if those are true, then even the death of Isaac cannot stop those promises from being fulfilled. What's interesting is we are not told about Abraham's thoughts or feelings in this text at all. But when you go to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and they start reflecting upon Abraham's thoughts, I don't know how they got those, whether it was direct revelation or what was going on, but this is what it says in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Wow. Abraham had never witnessed a resurrection. He had never... Like, oh, that happens all the time. Okay, God God will just raise him from the dead. No, he's he's reasoning, he's thinking about this promise, and then he's thinking about this command, and he's telling himself that this command cannot somehow nullify this promise. And I don't know what's going to happen, but God is going to intervene and do what he has to do. I find it really awesome that Abraham thinks this thing through. Wouldn't it not have been easier if God had showed up and told Abraham, oh, go ahead, kill him, because I'm going to raise him from the dead? He could have told him that. He doesn't. He wants Abraham to cling to the original promise. He wants him to live by faith. This is a test of faith in Abraham. Abraham uses his reason and he lives by faith. Now, it's not by accident that in the New Testament, both Paul and the writer of Hebrews and James all use Abraham as a model to us. They all do. Paul focuses a lot on Genesis 15. He believed God has credited him as righteousness. James focuses on this moment. And so in James 2, he says that Abraham's faith was completed by his work of being willing to slay Isaac. Think of maybe the illustration is that the promise of God is a flame. And God is asking Abraham to snuff out the flame while still believing that the flame can't be stuffed out. Now this abandonment of all the blessing is made clear by God's telling Abraham that Isaac is his only son. Now, you know from our study in Genesis that Isaac is not his only son. He has another son named Ishmael. But previously, we saw in the sending of Ishmael away, he was basically disinheriting Ishmael. So, God did that. God told him to disinherit because he wants Abram to feel at this moment that everything hinges on this act of obedience. And God also tells Abraham that Isaac is the son whom you love. I find this really wonderful too, because it would be very easy to say, Abraham must not have cared much about Isaac to be willing to do this. God actually evaluates Abraham's heart and says, this is a man whom you love deeply. And in fact, if Abraham doesn't love Isaac, I think the whole story loses value. Abraham is being asked to sacrifice that which is most dear to him. And this is a very important point. Sometimes as Christians, because we know that we are supposed to love God supremely, we will, in order to try to do that, we will try to minimize or squelch affections for other things or people. That is not biblical. It is not biblical. God is the one who actually produces in Abraham a love for Isaac. He's been waiting for Isaac for 25 years. God is the one that gets him going to think how much Isaac is, is important to him. And then, because that depth of love makes this moment so valuable. How many of us here uh, who are married... When you first start falling in love, you start feeling guilty about your relationship with God because you're like, whoa, have I ever felt this way about God? I don't know if you did. I felt that way. And I began to wrestle with that, and I began to think, well, maybe I shouldn't just love anything. Actually, when I first started feeling feelings for Robin, I thought maybe I should just run the other way. And then I thought, the problem is not me loving Robin. The problem is how little I love God. God wants Abraham to love Isaac. And then he wants Abraham to be willing to sacrifice Isaac. So Abraham uh, doesn't hesitate, does he? Rises up early in the morning, takes off. We don't know if he had doubts. Every other encounter with God's word, Abraham like expresses doubt not here okay go and a lot of the commentaries are all over the place on uh, the the silence of abraham my personal thinking is that even though abraham may have had a lot of internal uh struggles and reasoning going on um, the the writer moses of genesis is trying to present abraham as the ideal this is the pinnacle you and I are not there yet. We're always struggling with our inner desires. But Abraham is presented to you as the ideal. And There is no hesitation. There is absolute obedience. This is the goal to which you are heading. It's interesting that as they go, they get to the place and he sees it from afar and he tells the servants to stay while he and Isaac go. And I think there's a lot of uh, importance here. These Servants act as witnesses. Do you realize if it was just Abraham and Isaac and no one else saw it, it would just be something in the mind of Isaac and Abraham alone, like his story against my story. These uh, servants are far enough away that they can't intervene, but they're close enough that they can witness. And I think that's what's happening here. And Abraham is actually having, at this point, uh, a, a true faith. He actually says to the servants, Both myself and the boy will go worship and come back. So in some sense, he he doesn't think this is going to end in Isaac's death. This story is not primarily about Isaac's faith. Some have turned it into that. It's not. It's primarily about Abraham's faith. When when Isaac asks, where's the sacrificial lamb, Abraham doesn't explain to Isaac what's going to go on. He just says, the Lord will provide. Now, there's obviously some trust in Isaac at that point, but this idea that he doesn't tell him everything. By the way, I think it's interesting to muse, although you can't go too far in this, what does he tell Sarah? He's at the point he's ready to plunge the knife into his son. There's clearly he is ready to go through with it. And God shows up and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not do this. What is interesting is, what does he commend Abraham for? Based on what I've said so far, I would think that he is commending Abraham for his faith. But that's not what he says. He says, you fear God. And I know that the the New Testament and some scriptures try to pit faith and fear against one another or love and fear against one another. And there is a way to do that. The fear of judgment and the love of God are incompatible. But, But in this passage, along with other passages in scripture, faith and fear and love and obedience all merge together. Okay? You can turn to Deuteronomy 12 if you want. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul? Do you see how those all weave together? Very important. I believe that without a proper fear of God, you will not rightly love God. And without a proper love of God, you will not fear God. I think they mutually affect one another. And I would also say that this test comes after twenty-five years of inter—actually, more than that, uh, thirty-some years of interaction between Abraham and his God, demonstrating to Abraham the love of God. Now we get down to fifteen. You think about the past verse fifteen, the past, the, the this test being passed. God says to him, "Because." You have done this and have not withheld your only son. Actually, your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. A couple of things going on here. Number one, it sounds contrary to faith alone. Abraham, you will have the blessing because you have perfectly obeyed me in this moment. You have obeyed me in this moment. So we have this. Here it is, Paul and James duking it out, right? This is it right here in the passage of Scripture. It's a tension that we have to live with. But what is left out? God says, because you have not withheld your son, your only son. In the initial statement, there was another statement, was there not? Whom you love. That is the real issue in this. Abraham is made a statement that God accepts That the love of God is more important than the love of the blessing. Do you love God because he's going to take you to heaven? Or do you just love God, whether he would take away heaven? Maybe a, a powerful way to put this, I would rather rot in hell and still have God than be in heaven without God. In my best days. I will not be able to bring together the tension of are we justified by faith alone or are we justified by works until we get to the third sermon that Abraham is a type of Christ. Because I don't believe that Abraham's faith is absolutely perfect. I believe that only Christ's obedience, only Christ's perfect sacrifice is what is truly the foundation of our salvation and that Abraham is a type of Christ. We'll get to all that later. But understand this, and this is really what I wanted to just focus on today, is God wants you to love the blessing. He wants you to hope for eternity and the good things of heaven. But as long as you love that blessing more than Him, it is like a thorn in your heart that will not let you truly enjoy the blessing. That thorn has to be removed. Each one of us is on a journey of that. Jesus teaches this in the New Testament. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you get that? God is willing to strip you of some of the things that you love the most in order to little by little, gradually over time, wean you off of the blessing so that you will love the blesser more than the blessing. Could you imagine being in heaven and caring more about the blessing than you do about God? By the way, we're coming up to Christmas, and often they say Christmas is for kids. There's a lot of excitement that kids have, but I think Christmas is for adults. Because finally, as an adult, you realize that the person who gives you the gift is far more important than the gift that you get. And then, in the beautiful way that this is, uh, Luke 14 says you've got to give up everything. In Luke 18, Peter says, yeah, we lost everything for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, ha, huh. ha. There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So ultimately, in giving up the blessing, in surrendering the blessing, you don't actually lose the blessing. So where are you? Is there something that now has a hold on your life? Is it your comfort? Is it your marriage? Is it your kids? Is it your health? Is it your career? Is it your security? Is it your reputation? Is it the fruitfulness of your ministry? What is it that you love more than you love God? It's not the bad things. Yes, you have to give up sin to follow God. But God is asking far more. Paul says in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And I know if you're like me, you're sitting here thinking, I don't know if I can love God more than such and such. And i just tell you, you're in good company. Every time I think I have given everything to God, another thing pops up that I go, oh man, I really love that. Has a hold on my heart. Think of those things that you complain to God about all the time. Think of those things that, that you get angry at God for. Because he doesn't give them to you. None of us has the strength within ourselves to love God this way. I would argue that Abraham didn't have it. I would argue that even though the Holy Spirit is not even mentioned in this passage, that the only way that Abraham was able to have this attitude is because the Holy Spirit was working in him. When you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, He puts His Spirit into your heart with the very purpose to get you to this place. This is why the Spirit lives in you, so that you will die. You're not entirely passive. I hope as you leave here this day, you should be asking God to strengthen your faith. You should be asking him to help you more fully grasp the unbreakable nature of the promises of God to you. You should be asking him to help you understand his, the depth of his love for you in Jesus Christ. You will never sacrifice yourself to someone that you do not know loves you. You'll have a, a thousand ways to try to apply this. I could give you the many ways in my life that God has shown this and this and this, but you've got to think about the ones that are in your life. The glory of eternity will be that we will have the fullness of blessing without making an idol of that blessing. Do you want God to do that in your life? Do you want him to strip it all? None of us really wants it. Only by the Spirit do we want it, but strive for that because that's the only place where there's true happiness. Confess to him that you don't love him as much as you ought. He'll forgive you, he'll love you, and give yourself renewed to him. Tell him, rip out the thorn that is causing me to love the blessing more than you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: 585. And let us pray this prayer together in Psalm. rise together.
0: If after hearing this, you want to go crawl into a corner and hide from God, go back and read Genesis 22, looking for Christ and looking for the Father's love, because those will be coming in the coming weeks. For now, understand, when God gives promises of blessing, they are unbreakable. You cling to those promises, and it will be so. Even if it feels like he is asking you to burn them up, those promises will be true. Trust in him. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Amen.